that today as we look at Jesus in John 18. Um, let me pray for us as we turn to God's word. Heavenly Father, um, we do recognize that your son has ascended and been seated at your right hand. And he holds a scepter in his hand. And he reigns. We acknowledge that this is your word. And we have no license to tamper with it. Help me now not say anything that is not of you, God. Help me not exert myself beyond you. Help me not hold back in a such a way that would dishonor you, God. But just let me, by your Spirit's unction, be your spokesman. I pray this, Jesus, in your great name. Amen. Amen. During the 18th century, the culture in England was in a tailspin. Clergy were corrupt. Working conditions, thanks to the Industrial Revolution, were abysmal. The gap between rich and poor was widening. The country had wrung from France and Spain a monopoly over the slave trade. In London, between 1730 and 1750, three out of every four children died before their fifth birthday. Those who lived had little recourse to education. 18th century England was called by some the gin age, and others referred to it as a time of the highwayman, meaning the robber. Statesman Horace Walpole, a man who was shot while walking through Hyde Park, wrote in 1751, one is forced to travel even at noon as if going to battle. It was into this quagmire that the evangelical revival was born, which was a time not only of great spiritual change in that country, but as we'll see, it was a time of great social change as well. Under the ministry of George Whitfield and John and Charles Wesley, people, the common people, began hearing about the new birth, about what it meant to have faith in Christ and have a personal relationship with him People were converted by the thousands. New converts, they started to band together in little groups. They called them clubs or holy clubs. They would meet weekly. They would confess their sins to one another, study the Bible together, pray to one another, encourage one another spiritually. People were being spiritually transformed, you see. And this had an inevitable impact on the society around them. William Wilberforce was converted under the ministry of John Wesley. Here was a man who would serve decades in parliament to end the slave trade. Filled with the spirit, others would work for reform in the industrial system and in the prison system. Hannah Moore would start Sunday schools where the children of poor families could be educated. There even was an explosion in literary output from poets and writers top of our minds is Charles Wesley. It is said that Wesley wrote two hymns a week, every week for 50 years. Of this period, a historian writes, England, after Wesley, after the evangelical revival, saw many of that century's evils eradicated because hundreds of thousands became Christians. Their hearts were changed, as were their minds and attitudes. 
And so society, the public realm, was affected. Wesley's purpose under God had been achieved to attack the root cause of spiritual atrophy and moral decay and to purge the nation's soul. Now, none of this is to imply that during this time, England became the kingdom of God. It didn't. One only needs to look at its spiritual state today to know that didn't happen. But it is to say that this moment in time is a vivid illustration both of the logic of how the mission of God works and how powerfully it can impact a culture. Did you see the flow of it? We've been saying this this fall as we've looked at mission. We've been saying just quoting Jesus, that as the Father sent the Son into the world, so too the Son sends us. So we've said our mission is a furtherance, is a continuance of Jesus' mission. We've also said that Jesus' mission is marked by him bringing about three new realities, new life, forming a new people, and then, which we're going to look at today, inaugurating a new kingdom. You see the flow in 18th century England. It started with new life, with the new birth. Preachers began preaching conversion. People were changed in the heart. These people banded together. New people formed by those who had new life. These new people, they abided in the vine, like we said last week, and a power began working through them, and they inevitably, as we'll see this week, they inevitably went out into their world as representatives of a new kingdom. Because what we're going to see today, what we're going to focus on today is that Jesus came into the world not just as a savior, not just as a Messiah to gather a people, but he came as a king and he inaugurated a new kingdom. And we wanna ask what that means for our personal and corporate mission here and now. Kingship comes up in John 18. I mean, it comes up all over the place in the gospels, but in John's gospel, it comes to the fore in the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. You may know that the sign that goes above Jesus' head, written by Pilate in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, reads, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. It's a paradoxical enthronement. They mock him at his crucifixion. Well, just before that, Jesus had been presented to Pilate during his trial, and the theme of kingship came up. So, Pilate asked Jesus in John 18, verse 33, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, Jesus doesn't outright deny that he's a king. In verse 37, in fact, he says, you say that I'm a king? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I came into the world. But in between Pilate's question and that answer in 37, there's a back and forth where Jesus seems to resist defining his kingdom in clear terms. And he sets it forth in a way that's very strange. So in verse 36, Jesus says, Jesus answered Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. So notice this with me. In verse 37, Jesus says, 
You say I'm a king, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I came into the world. Verse 37, you circle into the world. I came into the world for the purpose of being a king. Verse 37. Verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world, circle of this world. So what is it? Did you come into the world as a king, or is your kingdom not of this world? Do you see how strange this is? Now, if we've been paying attention to Jesus, he's already said things like this. He said to his disciples, peace I give to you, but I don't give to you as the world gives. He said then in John 17 in his high priestly prayer, he said to the Father, he said, Father, do not take them out of the world, but leave them in the world, but they are not of the world, just like I am not of the world. He comes into the world, but he's not of the world. He sends us into the world to not be of the world. His kingdom is in the world, but not of it. So so here's what you have to ask if you're a Christian. What in the world does it mean to go out into the world on a mission to bear witness to, to represent a kingdom that is both in the world but not of it? That's the question I wanna ask with you today. And the way I'm gonna try to answer it, or partly answer it, is I'm gonna compare this new, in the world but not of it kingdom, I'm gonna compare Jesus' new kingdom to three realities, to three things. I'm gonna ask how it relates to other kingdoms. I'm gonna ask how his kingdom relates to the church, what we're doing right now. And I'm gonna ask how his kingdom relates to your personal callings, what you do Monday through Saturday. So let's just ask, how does this new kingdom relate to these three things? We'll begin with asking how Jesus' kingdom relates to the kingdoms of this world. Now, Now this, this interaction between, between his kingdom and the kingdoms of, the, of this world, it's really there quite vividly in, in the trial when Jesus is being interrogated by Pilate. I think if you have eyes to see, as Jesus is questioned by Pilate, as Pilate says to him, are you a king? You actually have God confronting Caesar. Do you see that? You have the son of God, God in the flesh, speaking to the representative of Rome. So, that, so what's happening right here is a confrontation between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world, Rome. And so Pilate asks, are you a pathetic king of the Jews? Do you know who I am, Jesus? Do you want to go there? Jesus' response, my kingdom is not of this world. It's kind of a slippery response. What exactly does this mean? You didn't say you're not a king, but you certainly don't seem to be confronting me the way I expected. What does it mean just think for a second. What does it mean when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world? Well, it means at least two things, just that phrase. First, it means Jesus' kingdom does not originate from here. It's not of this world in the sense that it's not from this world. It didn't grow in the soil of this world. It's not from seeds planted in this world. It doesn't source its power from this world. It doesn't need to be recognized from other kingdoms of this world like Rome in order to exist. It doesn't originate here. The second thing it means, though, is that Jesus' kingdom doesn't operate like this world. It doesn't originate here. It doesn't operate like things here. And he explains this as he goes on in verse 36. And he says, if my kingdom were of this world, meaning if it operated like this world, my officers, my disciples, verse 36, they would have taken up swords and they would have made sure that I wasn't arrested. Meaning the way my kingdom will advance looks very differently than the way power dynamics work here and now. So, 
If Jesus' kingdom is here on earth, he came, but it's neither from here, nor does it operate like things here, well then what in the world is it? Where does it show up? What is its nature? Let me give you a few thoughts on this. First, Jesus' kingdom, it doesn't, it doesn't begin as a geopolitical territory, but as a spiritual reality. So it's a spiritual reality first. It obviously has impact outside of that. But, but to see this, recall how one enters the kingdom of God. If someone asked you at lunch today, if your child said, Dad, I'd like to be in the kingdom of God, what do I, what do I need to do? I wonder how you would answer. I'd recommend you go to John 3, verse 3. Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, John 3, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Jesus is saying a spiritual thing has to happen called the new birth in order for you to even see my kingdom, for you to enter it. Paul, uh, writing later, when St. Paul talks about the kingdom of God, he typically has in mind its future full consummation. He'll talk about how we'll be judged when the kingdom follow, finally arrives. But every now and then, Paul talks about it as a present reality. One of those instances is in the book of Colossians. Colossians 1 verse 13. Here's what Paul says about the present reality of the kingdom. He says, God, he's talking to Christians, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The image for Paul, as with Jesus, is not of a kingdom that's marked out by geography or politics. It's a kingdom marked out by something spiritual and relational. God transfers someone from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. It's relational in the sense that to be in the kingdom is to have a relationship with God marked by redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So that's just the first thing to note. The kingdom is not only spiritual, but at its core, as it shows up, it is a spiritual reality. A second thing to notice about the nature of the kingdom is, is how you experience its reign. Often on earth, if there's a sea change in kingdoms, you experience it as external change, maybe external threat, maybe there's new rules, maybe you have to pledge allegiance to a new flag. Things from the outside happen to you. Not so with the kingdom of God. When the, when the reign of God begins in your life, you experience it in your heart. It shows up as the dynamic reign of Jesus over your heart and life. That's how the kingdom begins in the New Testament. And I've often said, and I'll say it again, the most difficult territory to be conquered on earth is the human heart. Every human kingdom, good or bad, is downstream from human hearts. This is where the kingdom of God breaks in. It's not the only territory it's involved with, but it's dynamically its center. So we're, we're asking right now, how does God's kingdom relate to Caesar's? We've seen that Jesus' kingdom, this spiritual in nature, 
We've seen that his reign is going to begin as he puts his scepter down in a human heart. He subdues your passions. He gains your allegiance and your love. Now, what does this tell us at this point about how this kingdom relates to other kingdoms? Like the nation you live in or whatever kingdom you're from. What does it tell us about the relationship between the two th- these two things? You could probably say a lot here. I'll just suggest two things. First, this spiritual dynamism of the kingdom of God here and now, it tells us that Jesus' kingdom at the moment is not a replacement nor a rejection of temporal and earthly forms of governance. Imperfect as they may be, these temporal forms of governance serve a good. They are God-ordained and have a purpose. Jesus is looking at Pilate and almost saying, don't worry, I'm not gonna come at you with a sword, but I am attacking a kingdom of darkness of which you may be in. Now, you, you see here, if you, if you think about Paul writing to the Christians in Rome, you see him affirming the ongoing structures of civil government. Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So Paul, who understands that he's in the kingdom, has a paradigm where you're under the reign of Christ, but you still are respectful and you submit to earthly kingdoms. Civil governments, human kingdoms, are not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God cannot be reduced to these things. But they are for our welfare. They they keep evil at bay. They are, when they work right, they are to exercise justice and as such reflect the character of God. They're to ensure that their citizens can live peaceable lives. Jesus' people can and should, when they have opportunity, seek roles in civil government. Many of you do. And as you're there, you seek to be a faithful presence honoring both the natural government you're in, but representing a kingdom from another place. You seek to have a godly influence on the structures and the ways of the world around you. So that's just the first thing, is that Jesus' kingdom in the present does not replace the need or even the goodness of human governance. Second, the fact that Jesus' kingdom begins as a spiritual reality and it moves through the new birth, it advances that way, it means, it tells us that Christians should never see civil government as the tool for building the kingdom of God. Civil government can create space for people to grow in faith, for people to study religions. It can create a more Christ-like or a less Christ-like environment. But to say, That the civil government can advance the kingdom is to mistake the work of the spirit for the work of the sword. If the kingdom is entered by the new birth, you tell me what government can enforce the new birth. The kingdom advances by the work of the spirit and the word of God in the human heart. And therefore, there can be space made for that by earthly kingdoms. But the power of man can never coerce genuine faith, just like the power of man can never coerce genuine love. The kingdom advances through a strange work of the spirit through the word of God, through persuasion and love 
one heart at a time. This is why Jesus says to Pilate, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting, meaning they would advance it by physical force. You know, he's foreshadowing the fact that his kingdom will be advanced by his own blood, not by spilling the blood of his enemies. Now, as I said, this this does not deny the role of human governments in wielding the sword to protect and preserve. It does, however, mean that no earthly kingdom ever becomes the full bearer of the kingdom of God. That would reduce God's power to human power, and that's simply not how he works. So this is a bit about how Jesus' kingdom relates to the kingdom's of this world. His kingdom goes deeper into the heart, it stretches further into the future, and it sits within all these different kingdoms, influencing them for the common good, calling people to a higher king. That's the first relationship to look at. Secondly, how does Jesus' kingdom relate to the church? You know, some people may say, you know, the church isn't really about the kingdom. That's the church. The kingdom's like when you're out there in the world getting involved in things. What, what, what does Sunday morning have to do with the kingdom? Now, the one way to answer this would be to notice that although Jesus does not set up a geopolitical kingdom right now, he does actually inaugurate a nation, a people. We read in 1 Peter, as Peter addresses Christians, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Do you hear the language, a holy nation? Jesus has founded a holy nation. Now, if his kingdom is not geopolitical, where does this holy nation, where do these people show up in real time? Jesus connects his kingdom to his church when he says to Peter in Matthew 16, he, ha- he has this intense interaction with Peter. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he looks at him and he says, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. Meaning on this apostolic testimony to truth, I will build my church. There's the word church. One of only three times Jesus uses it in the gospels. He says church. In the very next breath, he brings up kingdom. He says on this rock, I will build my church. Next breath, Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. There's a relationship between the church and the kingdom in Jesus' mind. Here's what he means. The church shows up on earth and functions as an instrument of the kingdom. It bears witness to the kingdom. So think about what you do when you gather Sunday morning. I don't know if you ever thought about how how political it is. We gather here together, and in our liturgy, we proclaim another king. We say, every time we say the Nicene Creed, we say that Jesus is resurrected, and, and as Christians, we actually believe this. If you're, if you're not a believer and you're here and you think this is just like, kind of wrote liturgy. Like, these are the truest truths for us. So we believe that Jesus was resurrected. This is a fact. And then he ascended and he's seated at the right hand of God. We say it in the creed. He ascended and is seated at the right hand of God. That's an act of enthronement. 
We're acknowledging that his throne is above all other thrones. And then in the next breath, we say, and he will come again to where this earth to judge the living and the dead. And then what do we say? And his kingdom will have no end. Think about that. You who are citizens of kingdoms of this world, you say his kingdom will have no end, meaning all the other kingdoms will. It's a political statement. And one way I have found helpful to think about the relationship between the the local church and the kingdom is to think of that, um, think of the image of an embassy and ambassadors. We know embassies, we live in Washington, D.C. What's an embassy? An embassy is a representative of a foreign kingdom. An embassy sets itself up and through its diplomats or ambassadors, it it, it comes into a foreign kingdom and it represents that kingdom to this foreign kingdom. It represents a foreign kingdom in a different geography. This is what the church is. It's just that we don't represent a kingdom from a different geography. We represent a kingdom from a different time from a different spiritual reality, a kingdom that is coming actually from the future into the present. That you know, it's already fully established. God's kingdom breaks in, meaning it's already here. The church is an embassy that bears witness to this. Now, now just follow me with this analogy. Consider um, a local embassy, what they may do for a citizen. I mean, maybe you've been in a foreign country before and you've gotten into some trouble. Maybe you've lost a passport and you finally find your embassy. And how does it make you feel? Oh my goodness, I'm home, please. And the embassy can help you with paperwork. They can help you get a passport. What, what does that mean? It means they have some authority to mark out your citizenship in a foreign land. Do you know we do this as a church? Do you know how we do this as a church? We do it through the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. When we perform a baptism here, we are marking people out as God's sons and daughters. When we serve the Lord's Supper, you'll hear us, we invite only baptized Christians, only citizens of the kingdom forward because this is God's foreordained time to reveal who his people are. These are tokens. These are the way we mark out in the embassy that is the local church. These are the ways we mark out the people of God. Now, consider for a moment that when you, this is actually helpful for thinking about, for you thinking about what you should expect from your pastors. When you who are citizens, when you exercise your civic duty and you elect leaders, um, governors, congressmen and women, senators, you elect them to do certain things and they're authorized to do those things. They do things like legislate, pass laws, they govern. That's what they do. Now, you don't go to their office and bang on the door and say, why haven't you been serving the Lord's Supper more? How many baptisms have you done since you've been in office? You don't do that because they're not authorized to do that, nor were they elected to do that. When you come into the church, you have officers. People have been ordained, who have gone through a process, people that the church has acknowledged, the bishop have acknowledged, they've given to you to administer the tools of the kingdom of God. Baptism the Lord's Supper, and preaching. In the same vein, be careful not to conflate the role of your pastor with that of your politicians. I am not authorized to tell you how to vote. You didn't elect me to do that. Nor am I competent to weigh in in any meaningful way on matters of public policy. I was not educated to do that. Do I have opinions? You bet I do. 
you have not elected me to serve you in that way. What you have done is you've elected me and God has called me to administer to you the things of the kingdom of God. My job is to put in front of you the truest truths, the deepest realities, so that your conscience would be formed by the Holy Spirit in such a way that as you go out and exercise your civic duty, what you ought to do, you are under the leadership of God as you do it. And your conscience may take you in a different direction than the person in the pew next to you as you exercise your civic duty, as you decide which local officials to elect. My job is that you would tremble before God as you do these things. So, that's how the kingdom relates to the local church. When you come in here, come in as though a traveler in a foreign land who's tired and weary. We speak your language. We believe in the things you believe. We can affirm that you're his daughter and you're his son. This is a little patch of home when the world often can feel, as Peter and Paul says, it can make us feel like sojourners. And exile. So that's the second relationship between the kingdom and the church. Third, how does the kingdom relate to other kingdoms? How does it relate to the church? Now I want to get a little more personal. How does it relate to you personally? Because you know, Paul, picking up on the embassy illustration, Paul actually says in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. This is where I get the embassy image. We're ambassadors for Christ. He says, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled with God. Meaning, an embassy sends its ambassadors out into the world. Do you know sometimes you can call an ambassador an emissary? Do you know emissary has the root word for mission in it? Missio from Latin. An emissary is a missionary on behalf of an embassy. You are emissaries for the kingdom of God. Now, what does that mean for your personal callings? for what you do, for where you go, Monday through Saturday. This language of calling, often vocation is used, it's the same word, has to do with how God personally calls you to use your gifts and talents. And you know, there was an Anglican clergyman um, in England, brilliant man, prolific writer um, in the 16th century, 15th, 16th century, um, excuse me, in the early 1600s named William Perkins. And he, he wrote a lot, and he wrote a treatise on vocation. Can you believe that? Back in 1605, he published this at Cambridge. Here's the title. It's a good old Puritan title. He says, a treatise of the vocations or callings of men with the sorts and kinds of them and the right use of them. Here's what he writes. Now, bear with me. He's, he's Puritan writing. He says, God binds all people. I love that language. He binds all people to be confirmed with some certain state and condition in life, in the family, in the commonwealth, in the church, that man should use the place of his office assigned to him by God in a holy manner. Perkins explains that there's two types of callings, a general and a specific. We all as Christians share a general calling. That's our calling to be people of prayer, to live a godly life, and to be part of a local church and help build it up. This is what he lays out. But we also have, he says, a personal calling. This has to do with the family God has given you, your parents, your siblings, your spouse, your children. It has to do with the sex that you are, whether he's determined that you are a man 
or a woman. It has to do with the epoch you live in and so forth. It has to do with the unique gifts and talents and opportunities that he's given you that will express themselves through your jobs. This is his personal calling on you. And you know, our personal callings are different and we, also, we, we often fall into the temptation of comparing them. Do you know this happens at the end of the Gospel of John? Jesus is commissioning his disciples into their callings. He's, he's telling Peter what to do. He's telling John what to do. And he says this thing to Peter. He says, Peter, you're going to grow up one day and you're going to be led somewhere you don't want to go to wear what you don't want to wear. And he's alluding to the fact that Peter's going to be martyred for him. Do you know what Peter does? He looks over his shoulder at the other disciple and he says, what about him? You know what Jesus says? This is John 21, verse 21. Peter says, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to Peter, if it is my will that he remain until I come. What is that to you, Peter? You follow me. In your callings, you're gonna say, but Lord, I want her life. I want, I want his job. And Jesus, he, he, like, like blinders on a racehorse, he's gonna put his hands between your eyes and his and he's gonna say, you, you look at me. I know what I'm doing. You live your life, your calling. I have foreordained it for you, for your good and the good of many others. There's a, a pastor named Jay Kim who pastors Westgate Church in Silicon Valley. So all kinds of young people, super gifted and motivated to work. And uh, Kim wrote it in a little essay called Vocation is Exiles. And he says the following, this is a great quote. He says, vocation is the calling to serve others by creating a heartfelt work of beauty, an artist's painting, an engineer's code, a teacher's lesson, a baker's cake, a stay-at-home parent's myriad responsibilities. These and so much more are vocation, the gift of invitation to offer our best effort to God's glory and for the good of others in the various places and spaces we occupy. Now we could we could say a whole lot about calling and vocation, but I just want to underscore this one point. If Jesus is our king, and his kingdom is strangely here but not here, it does mean that he is going to send you out into the world. And whether you like your job or not tomorrow morning, I just want you to hear this word from Paul, where he says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Put your hand to the plow for the honor of the king. So that's a bit about how the kingdom of God relates to us, to other kingdoms, to our church, to our personal callings. We could say more, but I'm gonna close with one more historical vignette. We began in 18th century England. Let's end in the fourth and fifth century of Northern Africa. You may know that surprisingly, less than 300 years after Jesus' conversation with Pilate, that the Roman emperor would become a Christian. Constantine, year 312, was converted. Amazing. And you may know that seemingly Rome became a Christian state. If you're a Christian, you would have thought you won. This is it. Just as strangely, by 410, Rome is tottering. They're being invaded. People are fleeing. Refugees are pouring into Northern Africa. And the ones that are Christians find themselves sitting under the preaching of this amazing bishop named Augustine. And this man, you can read his sermons from the summer and fall of 410. He's wrestling with his existential crisis 
I thought Rome became Christian. Now it's crumbling. What does this mean for whatever the city of God is, whatever the kingdom of God is? And he begins to write, and he writes his magnum opus, The City of God. And he thinks it through. And he comes to this conclusion. He says, what is the difference between the kingdoms of men and the kingdoms of God? What is the difference between Babylon and Jerusalem? And he says, right at the heart of it is a line through the human heart about what you love. He says, the two cities were created by two types of love. The earthly city was created by self-love, reaching the point of contempt of God. Can you relate to that? The heavenly city has been created by love of God, carried as far as contempt of self. The one city loves its own strength, shown in its powerful leaders and statues. The other says to its God, I love you, my Lord, my strength. Where is the kingdom of God right now? Ask yourself the question that Jesus asked Peter thrice at the end of this gospel. When you look at your life, when you look at the family you're building, when you look at the career you're building, when you look at the city you're building, hear Jesus lean forward and say to you, Peter, do you love me more than these? That's where the kingdom shows up, where love is utmost love for Christ. Lord, we thank you um, for teaching us these things. We long for your kingdom to come fully. Help us be good representatives representatives of it as we live between the times. Amen.